ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Hello everyone and welcome to this, the latest episode of ESR Feature here on the Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet podcast and feed. And we're back for another pay-per-view look back. Uh, when you're hearing this, it is almost two days away from being 20 years to the day from this pay-per-view airing. So, you know, do that information what you will. You know, time is a construct of human perception. I am Scott McLeod, your host for this episode. And to put your mind at ease, no, they didn't willingly put me as the host of a feature show. They just had no other options because our glorious leader, Stephen Wilson, pulled out from some flimsy excuse like wedding plans. Get a life, Stephen. I am taking you guys back to the card of 2002's King of the Ring, the 10th and final King of the Ring pay-per-view, but it wouldn't be the last King of the Ring tournament. And with me today uh, are two of ESSR's finest who don't have hair. There you go. They're not the finest of all of ESSR, but... The finest of what I've got right now. Uh, but they don't you have to hide it like Kerrangle did the coward on this show. First off is the man with, as David Campbell described, the best voice in podcasting. Gary Kernan, welcome to the show. What were you doing at the time of King of the Ring 2002? Well, I remember watching this show, <laughs> uh, oddly enough. Um, you know, it's uh, you know, I used to love King of the Ring, you know, Bret Hart, for anybody that's ever listened to me in this podcast will know, is my is my hero. Mabel, another former King of the Ring, is up there. Uh, Bret <laughs> my favourite. And I, I still look back on that 1993 King of the Ring. I still enjoy watching it to this day, all the great matches, all the great competitors that were on that show. And in the latter years, when they messed around with the format of the King of the Ring, as we see in 2002, where you only have the semi-finals and the finals, that was something that stuck in my throat. But, but the reason I mention all this, Scott, is uh, Test, who had, uh, not long before this pay-per-view, had his wedding ruined still managed to make the show, which is more than we can see for our glorious leader, Stephen Wilson. Ah, Test. He wasn't the hero we wanted, but he's the hero that we needed, especially <laughs> on this evening. And knowing what this man gets up to for Saturday night, I don't know if I want to know what he was doing at the time of this pay-per-view. Andy Mitchell, what were you doing around the time of King of the Ring 2002? Well, uh, they probably had school in the morning because they'd only be about 13, so probably sleeping. <laughs> had that uh, VCR set, uh, you know, to go off at one o'clock, making sure that my granddad wasn't wasn't watching porn by accident. It's like, well, I want to watch wrestling. <laughs> if you had your VCR set, Andy, you had to make sure you had the long play videos in because you couldn't oh, get exactly. a chance. It would go over three hours and then you would miss the end. I know, that has happened many times where you record it two hours. You know, that's just something that these kids these days don't have to worry about, you know, that, that precious uh, long play videotapes. <laughs> Before this becomes another edition of Back in My Day, we'll, uh, we'll transfer ourselves back to 2002. What age were you? 2002, Andy? This would have, I would have been 19. Uh, I was 13. I was only 13, so I remember watching it the next day. So we used to have the the uh, was it the uh, wrestling tape where it was like I'd watch it, then I'd give it to my cousin, he'd watch it, and then he'd give it to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like yeah, uh, it's like gold dust. 
So, because Stephen Wilson isn't here, I want to get to pick up the slack on another aspect of what he does. And I'll quickly mention to you the top song and film of 2002. I've only went to the UK box office because I couldn't care less what the Americans were up to. <laughs> uh, in the midst of this, uh, in the midst of this pay-per-view, the logical song by Scooter, which is something I've never heard of until literally five seconds ago when I looked this up, was apparently in the middle of a six or seven week run. Um, at number one in the UK UK charts, it was in its second week of what would end up being a seven week run in the summer. Again, not a big Scooter fan, so I have no idea if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, in June 2002, the time this pay-per-view, Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire is currently taking the box office by storm uh, in the middle of a three week run at number one where it unseated Star Wars Episode 2 Attack of the Clones. And in two weeks' time, on the 7th of July, it'll be unseated by Minority Report, starring Tom Cruise. Some good films, though. Well, not mm. Attack of the Clones, but... Uh, oh, no, I liked Attack of the Clones, clones you, Mitchell. I know, it's, it's, it's not great, but it is better than the sequel trilogy, I'll say that. Uh, you can keep Minority Report. <laughs> well, Minority Report would only have one week at number one before it was unseated with a two-week run by Scooby-Doo. Oh, <laughs> Uh, starring Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Geller, and Matthew Lillard, respectively. Yes, former WWE writer, Freddie Prince Jr. Yeah. Written by uh, James Gunn, who would go on to direct John Cena in Peacemaker. Mm. I watched Peacemaker recently. If anybody's not seen it, it's well worth a watch. It's very good. Yeah, it's really good show. I only remember it came on Skyrim at the time of WrestleMania weekend, so... When I wanted a break from all the rest in that weekend, I basically just binge-watched Peacemaker. Yeah, I love the dirty jokes in it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. <laughs> so, we'll break down the, the card of King, and I think we need to obviously start with the titular King of the Ring tournament itself. There were four, three matches There were three matches on the show with the King of the Tournament. They did the semi-finals and the finals itself. We had two Raw representatives and Brock Lesnar and Intercontinental Champion RVD and Chris Jericho and Test representing SmackDown as the brand split was well and truly in effect at this period. Uh, given the fact that the two Raw guys advanced to the finals shows that even though SmackDown was about to become the the, the favourite of the hardcore fans, the WWE still firmly was behind Raw as the flagship show. But Gary, we yeah. need to first talk about the injustice of this intro package. It goes, 1993, shows Bret Hart winning. 1994, Owen Hart's triumph. Skips right to 1996. Skips over yeah. Mabel's triumph. It, it misses a couple of them out. I mean, what a slight to, to King Mabel. Uh, also, I think, does, did Ken Shamrock and Billy Gunn get skipped over as well? Yes, I mean, um, I forgive them for wanting to forget Billy Gunn, but what did Ken Shamrock do to anybody? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So ten, uh, this would be the 10th King of the Ring, and uh, as we touched on there, some illustrious winners before that, Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Mabel, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Triple H, Ken Shamrock, Billy Gunn, Kurt Angle and Edge. But this was the first King of the Ring where we had uh, the stipulation at the end of it where the, the winner would get a title shot at SummerSlam, which I quite liked. Um, which I, I, I quite like that part of it, but I've also found it interesting, guys, that this pay-per-view is on for two hours, 40 minutes. Uh, 
if you add up the in, the bell time of the King of the Ring matches, and uh, nobody had really particularly elaborate entrances, but the three King of the Ring matches total twenty nine minutes uh, of in ring action. So it's the King of the Ring. It's supposed to be the King of the Ring pay per view, but it feels like a pay per view with some King of the Ring matches in it. Mm-hmm. Me at least, anyway. Yeah. I mean, we covered uh, King of the Ring 96 before, Gary, and they did a similar format, and I think there was a lot of inconsistency with the King of the Ring the longer they had it as a pay-per-view, where, you know, it did feel like the King of the Ring was an an afterthought. But, uh, Andy, I think at least, you know, unlike recent King of the Rings, where, you know, all you can do is be called a king and wear a crown for the next six months before the gimmick's forgotten about, they actually had something on the line which they kept reminding you of the fact that the winner would go on to SummerSlam, one of the big four shows, the challenge for the Undisputed Championship. Yeah, no, it was a good concept because it kind of made you see, like, it kind of uh, added a bit of intrigue to, you know, there's actually a, a bigger prize than just being called King. But as Gary says, it's kind of like the actual tournament itself is a bit of an afterthought. It's like as soon as you start, it's like, oh, semi final, and it's like, oh, there's all going to be three matches. Yeah, and obviously they're very well spaced out because the first two matches are the King of the Ring, and then the the King of the Ring final comes at the comes at the like semi main spot. So there's a lot of stuff happening in between that you almost forget. Oh yeah, there's actually a tournament going on here. Mm. It's part of the reason I like shows like King of the Ring 2000 because they had like the quarterfinals as well. So the King of the Ring is very much a part of the show. But I think when the the more they cut it down to just the semis and then the final. The more it becomes an afterthought, and yeah, clearly it was already an afterthought given that they, they chose to get rid of it until 2006. I mean, I much prefer that type of setup as well, Scott, where you got the you got the last eight, you got the quarterfinals, and then you got another match in between to change things up, and then you got the semi finals, and then you had some other stuff before you got to the finals. And it felt then that the winner of the King of the Ring had really come through something. Whereas on this night, they came through two matches, which doesn't feel quite the same, in my yeah. view, at least, doesn't feel quite the same as, you know, when Bret Hart won it, he's getting through Razor Ramon, Mr. Perfect, and then Bam Bam Bigelow to uh, to, to eventually win it. It just doesn't feel quite as much of a mountain to climb. Yeah, I, I agree with Gary as well, because it's that thing as well where it's like you see those sort of interesting match types where it's like some of these opponents would never really face off, but the King of Ring gives them that. And especially with the Blanche Sprit, you would have expected a bit more crossover, but it just wasn't really. It was just uh, Smackdown Raw guys, Smackdown Raw guy, and then two Raw guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of the, the bracket like that was done on the TV before up to this was mostly Smackdown, a Smackdown, say, the bracket and a Raw bracket. And then you had two interpromotional matches for the semis. And then, like you said, unfortunately, two raw guys went forward. So basically, fuck you, SmackDown was the, v- the verdict from Vince McMahon. Yeah. And as I said, Vince already saw this period as a bit of an afterthought, even though it pulled in a live attendance of 14,198 at the Nationwide Arena in Columbus, Ohio, and a 320,000 pay per view buy rate. Uh, it was still down from the previous two years. So probably, like Vince, looks at the money and probably that's where he made his decision to scrap the King Ring as a pay-per-view concept uh, which is you know, kind of a sad ending for what was like considered up there with the, the as one of the big five rather than the big four kind of a role that 
money the banks kind of occupying nowadays. Yeah, and we picked this pay-per-view because uh, it has a historical importance that maybe on, on first glance you forget because Brock Lesnar beats Bubba Ray Dudley in the first round, the first qualifying round of the King of the Ring. But as, as everybody will know now, that wasn't supposed to be Bubba Ray Dudley that he beat there. That was supposed to be Stone Cold Steve Austin. And that led to Stone Cold Steve Austin walking out in the company and creative being totally rewritten. Ric Flair being recast, taken away as the co-owner of Raw and coming an active in-ring participant again. Mr. McMahon becomes the sole owner of WWE and in the not-too-distant future will appoint Stephanie McMahon as uh, GM of SmackDown and Eric Bischoff as GM of Raw. So, uh, and also, we don't, don't want to give away any spoilers there, but the person that w- w- will win this pay-per-view 20 years later will still be headlining pay-per-views. I know, you, you literally talk about like, getting a shot at SummerSlam, he's literally just been announced as challenging for the title of this year's SummerSlam 20 well, years later. Well, they stay the same. <laughs> I know. Like I said, what year is this? Like, time is a constant. And... You know, looking at Stephanie, soon to become in a position of power from a man who has a history of infidelity. And now, because of her father's infidelity, seemingly, and the money he spent on it, she's now currently temporary CEO of WWE. Mm-hmm. Looking at the King of the Ring semi-final, we'll go to the opener. Our Intercontinental Champion RVD taking on Chris Jericho, who's on SmackDown. RVD, one of the most over guys, I think, on this entire card. Mm-hmm. RVD beat Eddie Guerrero and X-Pac to get to this match where Jericho defeated Edge via forfeit because Edge had a legit injury. And then the big Bill Loski uh, to get here. So, you know, Titans that Jericho had to get through to get here. 14 and a half minutes this match went. Uh, Andy, the longest of the three King of the Ring matches. It felt like, given that RVD got the win, but then was attacked afterwards and... Uh, Lesnar had a subsequently shorter match in his semi-final that basically RVD was being made to look like the underdog of the tournament going against mm. the, the hot new monster. Yeah, no, it was, uh, like I say, that when I saw it was Jericho and, and RVD, it was like, oh, hopefully this will be like a really good match. And I, I did enjoy it, but I don't know. I just thought it could have been better. But uh, I quite so, like I quite liked how, uh, which you don't really see, is like uh, Jericho using his wrist tape to choke RVD and I was like oh, that's quite a good heel thing and and uh, I was just thinking it was like it was a shame although you said it's like RVD is really over and the underdog it's like when he taunts uh, when he does the RVD taunt in front of Jericho's face I was just like wouldn't it have been cool just to see him have that heel run that was a bit longer than like five minutes in the invasion like just this cocky sort of thing and uh, that's kind of what I was thinking about as I was watching the match Yeah I agree with you Andy uh, when I Look back and this and put this match on. I had higher, I had high expectations of it, but I was a bit disappointed in the match as well. Dave Meltzer gave it three and three quarters star. I think um, it you know it was fairly even, Stephen in the match up until Jericho, and he's been a the dastardly heel that he is, hit the ref into the ropes, causing RVD to get crotched on the top rope, and the pace picked up towards the end with some nice exchanges. There was a cracking counter. Uh, that Jericho executed into a lion tamer, which I always thought when done the way that Jericho used to do it in WCW when he would hold up a bit, um, would stand up a bit more. 
rather than sitting down and making more of a Boston Crab, looked absolutely devastating. And um, there was a nice uh, move when uh, Jericho was crotched into the frog splash, I think, to finish. But yeah, yeah overall, I, I also had higher expectations of the match. It wasn't a bad match by any stretch of the imagination, but with these two talents, you just think, oh, yes, what a pairing to start the pay-per-view. You know, like I said, it started to pick up the end. And just, you, I forget how great RVD is at selling. It's like, he gets German suplexed at one point, and he's like keeled over like an accordion. It's just like, oh, that looked pretty sore. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, looking at this match, I mean, I can see why they opened the show with these two, two great workers. Uh, RVD went insanely popular uh, this show. Because like the crowd were loud as giant RVD, and the, this crowd was really funny at certain points where they were just deathly silent for certain matches. And I know you said about being disappointed. I think I wasn't so much scary, but I think mm-hmm. there are a few matches that I thought like were, were would have been better than they actually were when we get to them later on. Like the, the running theme of this card for a lot of matches is this looked great on paper, but for a reason they just didn't have it on this show. But this is still one of the better matches. You know, there's some close calls towards the end. There's a random, like, shot into the exposed turnbuckle, which just gets a two count, so completely undersells the effect of, like, the exposed turnbuckle, which is usually meant to lead to, like, a heel advantage uh, for a win. But RVD gets the win after crotching, as you said, Jericho on the top rope, five-star frog splash, and then he's the fan favour of going into the, the finals against Brock, who takes on Test... Uh, Brock defeated Bubbery Dudley, as we mentioned, and Booker T to get here, whereas Tess defeated uh, the Hurricane and Hardcore Holly to get here. Uh, we, there was a post pre match thing of there. Who's who of wrestling, Scott? <laughs> I know. There's quite a few people while I look at this bracket here, a lot of one like the Big Vavoski and Hardcore Holly. Like, I'm shocked you guys are still around in 2002. Mm-hmm. Right, and so there's a pre-match thing of, of Heyman like hyping Brock up like for the title shot at SummerSlam. Uh, the match here is the Big E special of two big men slapping meat, and there's all these like, reported stories. I don't know if they've ever been confirmed that Test didn't like Brock. Like, he felt like Brock was going to take his spot as like the new big guy, and so Test tried to like stiff him at certain points, and you can almost tell it because these two are just hitting each other as hard as they possibly can. Yeah, there was a really physical exchange and it was quite a fast-paced match, but I think very little psychology in it, which is a big difference now when you see Lesnar perform today. And also what was really different was some of the the really physical moves that Lesnar took in the match. There was a pump handle slam, for example. Um, uh, There's a couple of nice sequences in there. Uh, there was quite a wicked big boot that Tess delivered, which led to a a near fall, but really there was only ever going to be one winner of the match. But I was surprised with the finish. I don't know what you guys thought about it. You know, uh, Brock getting the victory real largely and thanks to Heyman causing a distraction. Mm. Yeah, that, that surprised me as well. I think the idea that you know, Heyman's invested a lot in Brock is like the next big thing. It's his, his nickname at the time. And so he's trying to help ensure that he, he gets the win. But it is, like you said, a bit jarring to see this like imposing beast kind of need his manager to help him get the win. But I think it'd against the idea. It'd be so different to how Brock had been presented up to this point because he had like destroyed like mm. the Hart Boys, for example, and didn't and really needed 
a distraction to enable them to win. And my memory of this pay-per-view was more of a sort of a crowning moment for Brock. And looking back on it now, it's like, actually, I don't think that was really the case. You know, he got there by hook or by crook, not by totally dominating everybody um, on the way there. I think maybe it's the idea that he got there, he got to the final fire unfairly with like help from his manager, whereas RVD is a good guy. Well, basically did it the right way. He did it cleanly. And so again, like when RVD, spoilers, even though it's 20 years ago, eventually falls to Brock, it's like the audience are maybe like, oh, that wasn't fair to RVD. So obviously it's the heel going over. But I don't know. What do you think, uh, Andy? Yeah, no, I totally agree with what Gary and yourself are saying. It's sort of like, it just feels like wise, like Brock getting help. It was what I thought when RVD got attacked after by Jericho in his match. And it was like, are they doing that to kind of like, oh, he didn't, you know, he wasn't 100% when he was facing Brock Lesnar. And yeah, I was just imagining like a young Brock Lesnar was just running through people. And yeah, it just felt a bit of a clumsy match. It, it did start to, there were some good sequences at the end. Like, I, you kind of forget, although Brock's this big guy, he can move like a cruiserweight sometimes with the reversals. But it was just really corner centric, just to keep going into the corner for the whole match until the end. Yeah, I always love watching like pre USC, like young, more agile Brock, who like does a lot more than you, like, because you come, so, it's so expected to see him like suplex. Suplex, and that's his main like chrism mm. nowadays from fans that he does the same moves where he does a lot more here and then. Brock's always good when he sells because like it seems like he rarely does it. So when he does it nowadays, when he, he sells, he shows how good he is at it. Whereas here, he's getting properly dominated by Tess at points, which I think is what they try to say motivated him and to get involved. Like he had doubts that Brock would actually be able to get past you know, the the titan of it, the industry that is Tess. I know, honestly, when it came out to that music, I was expecting the old music, and I was like, what is this crap? You know, I, was like, I mean, I don't have a, a problem with them, um, like, having a physical match and being beat down and then having to overcome it. It was just the the finish that I thought, mm-hmm. you know, my memory, this is what's so good about doing these lookbacks, because my memory was this was a dominant night for Brock Lesnar, and it, it wasn't really. Yeah. It was. It went just over eight minutes. This match, and I think you said it's a decent match. It was good to like horse fight kind of match. But I said uh, the finish kind of brings it down ever so slightly with the involvement of him, and then we get a weird like time filling moment. It feels like even though like this, this show just goes like over two hours forty odd minutes. Oh, the random backstage reporters asking the the wrestlers who weren't good enough to be booked tonight. <laughs> uh, what do you think? Oh, they show like Bubba Ray Dudley gets a random interview asking, like, oh, what do you think? You know, oh, I'm very proud of two raw guys going to the final and everything. Oh, I've faced off with Brog, you know, he's a beast and everything. And then he just buggered off. And then uh, Christian and Lance Storm, who are alongside Tess, are part of the Un Americans, are random raving about this was meant to be an all Canadian final and Jericho got screwed, Tess got screwed. And then they just go on a rant about America. And, you know, they say about America well, having a history of discrimination, which is it entirely inaccurate? And yet we're meant to say, boo, you evil Canadians. Just quite funny that the like America's uh, like the most hated country, and then it's like after like <laughs> they voted in Trump, it's like, yeah, that still holds true. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty like years saying, later. <laughs> like we were saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, 
I apologise to our American uh, uh, listeners. Uh, Chris Anthony Lopez will be very annoyed with you. Uh, you never know, he might agree with us. Uh, but going on to that final with Brock versus uh, RVD for the, the final of the King of the Ring, the shot at SummerSlam, and you'd be forgiven for, not, and it'd be hard for you to forget what, the t- what they were fighting for because. He even kept shouting encouragement to Robert, <laughs> just saying, title shot at SummerSlam, title shot at SummerSlam, as yeah. if he got paid an extra $500 bonus every time he mentioned mm. what was on the line in this match. Yeah. Uh, the final itself, I mean, this one, the, the semi-final match, Tess and Brock, was given a half a star. The final was given 0.75, but the final's <laughs> one of the shortest matches on the show, isn't it? Five minutes, 42 seconds, which lasted only one second longer than the the Molly Holly and Trish match. Um and R V D and Brock and um it started off as quite an interesting match, you know, R V D using his speed and then as soon as Brock got a hold of him, you just seen power move after power move after power move, the power bomb, a massive power slam, some back bakers, a bear hug, really dominating the match until R V D managed to get some um offence in. We had another came in interference which almost backfired this time mm. but one of these cracking finishes that we've seen Brock do so many times over the year where he caught RVD miss mid-air and was able to deliver the F5 on the back of it Brock over the, his career would become become fabulous at the way he could catch people into mm. and the F5 so uh, and then he that was our king of the ring yeah, honestly, yeah, like, like you were saying, it's just the way he, he just grabs them and he moves them around. I was I was expecting GR to shout, it's like a man playing with children. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, he's not wrong, but uh, I think he saves that for the big show. When, uh, but no, it's just, yeah, he's just, he's, like, he is a beast. He's just, he's only like 24, 25 at this point, And he's just, yeah, he's just throwing people around like it's nothing. It's just insane. Yeah, I believe he was 25 at this point because when he gets his shot at SummerSlam, he becomes the youngest WWE champion at that point. No, just yeah. around the Rock, who had that, I think, went in at 26. 25 minutes, as we said, uh, it's weird to see the final of the King Ring. Something used to be like a prestigious honour, a match that you know, will help decide the main event at SummerSlam, where one of your big four shows gets almost as much time as the women's division, which is not being booked terribly well. But also, the cruiserweight match gets almost twelve minutes, and mm. like the commentators barely talked about the match when the cruiserweight match was happening, and yet that got more than the titular, you know, tournament that the pit navy is named after. The final of that tournament got less time than this. Yeah, the cruiserweight match was a nice sort of stroll back through memory lane. I mean, I loved the hurricane, and <laughs> when he first went into this role, and you would change from being. The hurricane into the intrepid reporter, reporter, <laughs> sorry, Shane Helms. I loved all that stuff. Oh, you just, uh, uh, Greg, uh, Shane Helms, Greg Helms, whatever he goes, his name is, <laughs> was just fabulous at, at that role, and he was so fab at the as the hurricane. Yeah, I tell you what, Jamie Noel can take a choke slam. Oh my god, <laughs> that was. <laughs> That looked better than the choke slams we see the Undertaker dish out later. That, in the show. Yeah. that was phenomenal. I mean, I better than better than the choke slam he gave to Hogan a month earlier to win the title. Have you ever seen that? Oh, exactly. 
that held the title for worst choke slam up until he had that match with Goldberg in 2019. <laughs> no, honestly, just the way Jamie Noble just jumped in the air. And I remember as a kid, I, I hated Jamie Noble. I just, I don't know, I just, I just hated the hillbilly sort of fight. But you know, looking back, it's like, oh, he's, he's, well, he's only like, again twenty six. Just mad because I'm like thirty now. It's like you know, I always think of these guys when you're young as being like so much older. Now it's like I'm older than them. It's it's quite terrifying. <laughs> it's weird to see the cruiserweight title match. It's weird to see the cruiserweight title. Get a buddy video package, yeah, where you see all like the debuting of Jamie Noble, who came in. I think when they bought WCW, he was working in the cruiser division in the dying days of that company. And uh, defeated as the boy, new boyfriend of Nidia, who clearly went to the Tommy Wiseau school of acting, as judging by this promo package. And then obviously, because JR and King had to do the commentary for the whole show, but I think it's SummerSlam where they bring in the idea of like. SmackDown commentators call the SmackDown matches, Raw commentators call the Raw matches, but because uh, mm-hmm. obviously Taz and Cole have been covering the storylines of certain matches before the SmackDown matches, they have to appear and they say, "Oh, here's a rundown. Like we're we'll tell you everything you need to know," and then cuts the back to JR and King clearly haven't been following the story, and then it's just King asking JR if he's ever lived in a trailer park. Yeah, there's a pay-per-view. I think it might be Vengeance that came after this, Scott. I can't remember exactly. Where Cole and Taz commentate in the first half of the show and then JR and King do the second half. And then you yeah. start getting into that thing that you described there with them changing changing over. We got a lot of the the King's classic lines in, in the show. There was during this one, eh, we got the you're only as old as the woman you feel line. <laughs> yeah. Um, Terrible. Mm-hmm. There was one line that made me out loud go, oh, for Christ's sake, where uh, GR was getting over the fact that basically the age difference between King and Nidia, she's old enough to be her daughter. And he's, King replies, what's wrong with that? Like, oh. oh. Considering your legal troubles, Jerry, you should know exactly what's wrong with that. <laughs> That's so yeah. bad. It was a wicked bit in this match where uh, Noble gets uh, suplexed over the top rope. From mm. the, So the Hurricane's back is to the ropes. Mm. right over and lands on his feet outside the ring. I'm sure, he, you know, looking at back, he was supposed to land on the on the apron, but uh, that, was, that was pretty... Wicked looking as yeah. well. Yeah, it looks like he slips. It's just like the heel of his feet just hits the apron and it just goes straight to the floor. And we would see a manager get involved again here, particularly for the finish where um, uh, Noble hits the power bomb and the hurricane, and the hurricane gets his his hands on the rope, and Nidia pushes him off for the finish. Ah. The uh, look at this match. Obviously, it's a match. It's this is like match. So Jr. King can't really call a lot of the. So we tell them, all they know is that like Nidia and Jimo have a hillbilly gimmick and they just keep making fun of that. Noble, I would see to see him in this match because I remember from like 02 to like 04, he was one of, one of the main heels in the cruiserweight division. I mean, mm. great matches with Hurricane, Tajiri, Rey Mysterio and the years that would follow this. But yeah, yeah, you're exactly right about the bit in Vengeance where they did the first half for Colin uh, Taz and then JR King came back and then revolving... Uh, between matches at SummerSlam onwards. And I've heard a story from Paul Heyman that you know, despite the main event of SummerSlam being between Rock and Brock, who were two SmackDown guys, he still had to fight hard with with Vince and Kevin Dunn to let Cole and uh, Taz close SummerSlam. And mm-hmm. Kevin Dunn apparently in that meeting 
while Taz and Cole were in earshot, said, but yeah, like, you know, JR and King are our pay-per-view announce team. Your guys are the B team. <laughs> so yeah, that's just goes to show that uh, what they saw at SmackDown, people working on it, but the fact that like, uh, the commentators aren't as invested in it and the crowd clearly aren't either. Mm. You know, they're doing some great like in-ring stuff, but when it's not when it's being met with mostly silence other than like a few moves like that a uh, swinging netbreaker off the top by uh, by the hurricane, I think that's what finally woke the crowd up about ten minutes into an eleven minute match. I and I think the thing that woke woke them up was the, the, the precarious nature of it because it looked like mm-hmm. at one point they were going to, they were going to take a tumble. Yeah, they, they, you could tell they took an extra second to make sure that they didn't fall, and obviously for a good reason because you know you don't want a spot like that to go wrong. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I was going to come back to the Cruiserweight title match later on. I know it's an undercard thing, but. You know, it was a solid match for what it was, even if the crew didn't really give it the, the respect they probably deserved. Uh, Noble would go and have a solid run as a Cruiserweight champion. Uh, going back to the King of the Ring before we move on to a, a different match, you you guys think that Brock's two matches in King, King of the Ring were kept so short because you know he's still like three or four months removed from his call-up from OVW, and despite taking it to it so naturally, he's still fairly like a rookie to the WWE. So I think this is done as a case like, you no. Know, Kevin Paul Hames is manager. Payman always talks about accentuate the positives, hide the weaknesses. So, I think this was done as a way to hide any potential weaknesses from Brock. Well, sorry, Andy, potentially, uh, potentially. But if you're going to hide his weaknesses, you don't put him in the ring with somebody like Test. (laughs) You know, you put with like a an Eddie Guerrero or a Chris Jericho, somebody that could work and make him look like a million dollars. Sorry, Andy. No, I was, I was literally going to say the same. It's like, yeah, it sort of just comes across as quite green still. But again, you put him with test, and it's just test is, although a big guy, it's just he moves so like just, you know, he's got a good big boot, but it just, it just was, I don't know, just wasn't mashing that well. But I think that's mm-hmm. a problem with sometimes with WWE. They, they, they just think, oh, if we get two big guys together, then you know it'll be a good match. And majority of the time, it's not really. Mm-hmm. And we'll come back to the undercard in a little bit, but let's talk about what the guys in the King doing, what they were fighting for a shot at. That's the Undisputed Championship, which in this show was held by Big Evil, you know, Baker, Undertaker, you know, come out to, you know, you've done it now. Uh, you've got to make a big mistake, which is actually, I think, one of my favourite themes of Takers. Uh, you know, I've heard all, not a lot of people yeah. like it. It doesn't have the lyrics yet, but it always reminded me, did you ever play the Spider-Man PlayStation 1 game? I can't say that I did. <laughs> it always reminds me of the music of that. I don't know why. No <laughs> fitting given that Spider-Man's number one at the box office at this point, but he's defending against Triple H. And... Yeah, absolutely, Scott. I mean, the, the, the World Championship match, Triple H and Taker, 23 minutes and 44 seconds. That was a... You know, they got a ton of time. Mm. I mean... Dave did not like this at all. He gave it half a star. I mean, Triple H loves these long matches. Triple H seemingly can't have a match that goes shorter than 15 or 20 minutes. He's just insistent on, like, no, my matches must go this long. And what a weird trajectory the Undisputed title has had so far. Like, Triple H won it uh, from Jericho in a poorly received main event because it should have been Hogan Rock as the main event. And then 
everybody got swept up in the popularity of Hulkamania that Hogan won the title from Triple H and what was maybe apparently Taker v Triple H at Backlash, but Hogan got put in this spot instead. Taker won the main event, uh, opportunity at Judgment Day at Backlash, be defeating Steve Austin in serious circumstances, pins uh, Hogan after a chair shot and the weakest choke slam of all time, and then has this match with Triple H. Uh, weird to see Triple H is the face and Buddy Taker is the heel. Mm-hmm. And uh, given you know, it's this one champion who floats between brands, which is kind of what we've got right now, uh, this is an interpromotional match. Taker from Raw, Triple H from SmackDown, and we'll actually see this one more time next month at Vengeance, where Taker defends against two more SmackDown guys and Kurt Angle and, and Kurt Angle and The Rock. So, you know, again, a parallel to what we've got now, the one champion floating between brands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As they sort of t- took it in terms with, you know, you would get a Raw contender and then somebody from SmackDown. I mean, obviously, when you had the um, longer programmes, that became slightly more um, difficult. You know, I didn't love this version of The Undertaker. It felt like a real, you know, they were trying to force a forced heel move on it. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't love this version of it, um, of the of the Undertaker. I don't know if it's just me, guys. Disagree. I don't know. I quite like. The uh the, the sort of heel talk. I don't like it when he's cowardly heel where it's like mm-hmm. it's like you're like nearly seven foot pal. <laughs> and you've got more just that's the part where you're a bit like, all right, uh, but it's just the the brutalness of him with those chair shots and that hype that pre match hype promo like really got me excited about this. But I remember this match not being that good, but I just remember the hype promo, you're like, right, I'm getting into it. It was quite similar to Orton and uh Triple H at WrestleMania twenty five where it was like the hype package, the hype package was better than the match because the match was just really slow compared to this like, like intense sort of like weapons sort of hype package. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a soft spot for this version of Taker because I think he had a lot of good programs during this time. You know, the stuff with Flair at WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I liked him as undisputed champion. He had that ladder match with Jeff uh, on Raw. I think it was shortly after this, and then he would go on a. That triple threat of vengeance, which I think is a, a triple threat, doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And you know, I like him, like I think, like Andy said, I don't like him as a cowardly heel, but I like him as this veteran, you know, respect the Undertaker kind of thing. And he'll, if you don't respect him, he'll beat the shit out of you until you do. And you know, he's carrying around the undisputed version of the belt, my personal favorite design of that title. I love it. It's still got the uh, the WWF logo, considering they've changed the branding. <laughs> I know. I mean, there was quite a lot of the cowardly undertaking the build up to this match. They also did one of the things in wrestling matches that I absolutely hate. They did that ten punchy spot, mm-hmm. um, where the audience counted along to ten. You know, if if any of us was to punch the other one in the face ten times with no defense, surely there's going to be a mark left. So I always, hate, <laughs> always hate. I know why they. Well, I know why it happens, but in wrestling, I just don't like the. Like the spot of it, for me, um, you know, this match there was quite a lot of brawling in it, and you know, quite a nice brawling sequence at the outside of the match. But it really picked up towards the end, where you got all the shenanigans that we could think of. We had the rock and commentary, we had the uh, chair shots, 
We had The Rock taking a big boot and wiping out the Spanish announce table, maybe knocking some of their cocaine over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that was sugar. <laughs> for, just for the coffee, maybe. Uh. Uh, uh, near falls, low blow, blows, chair shots. Uh, I loved when The Undertaker did the last ride to folk. I mean, that looked absolutely brutal. I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of that. So for me, there was I quite enjoyed the finish of the match. I enjoyed all the sort of all the shenanigans that went along to it. Although sort of maybe a weaker finish with terms of the roll up to mm-hmm. to get the match done, but it certainly set them up for what would follow the following month. So uh, uh, the Undertaker retains, and then he's going to take on uh, Kurt Angle and The Rock at Vengeance the following month. Yeah. I mean, I wish I kind of had some of that Spanish Iron Sable sugar uh, to keep me, you know, awake during this bloody match because Taker and Triple H have fought many times and either it's very good or incredibly boring. And there's never usually a middle ground. And this, unfortunately, was very boring. Like, they tried to keep you entertained with so many shenanigans to the point where, like, you'd just become numb to, like, two referees getting knocked down the rock coming out on commentary, which kind of distracts you. And you kind of realise that they're already looking ahead to the next month. He then personally cost Triple H the match at one point, uh, and there's never any resolution for that. And then he tries to cost the Undertaker the match, but Digger kicks out, and then yeah, like, like the curve of the Undertaker wins via roll up, and then all three guys just brawl after the match. It's it just feels like they're trying to you know maintain some semblance you know, of like these guys and the attitude early, like, all brawling, you know, chaos to end the pay per view, but it just didn't come across the same. And yeah. Like Andy said with the WF logo on the belt, uh, it did feel like, I remember they say WWE, like they had to emphasise it because probably something in their brain wanted desperately to say WWF because they were so used to it by that point. So they had to remind themselves, E, E. There was even a, a get the F out promo during the pay-per-view. I know, I was imagining that's uh, Vince McMahon hitting on the ladies, like where they got that script from. <laughs> Would you like to have a job as my secretary? Yeah. Would you like to meet John Laurinaitis? <laughs> so bad. <laughs> uh, I was going to say the entertaining part of probably the Taker and uh, Triple H match at the start is uh, Heyman on commentary uh, <laughs> saying he would sacrifice six of uh, nines of uh, Jerry Law's wives to get a title <laughs> shot. <laughs> and then there's just this awkward silence and then Jerry Law's like, I've only been married three times. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dager uh, walks out as the NBA champion unfortunately he wouldn't get to face the King of the Ring winner yet it would be the Rock that would face uh, Brock at SummerSlam but Dager then would go and have a feud into the fall with Lesnar one of and would go on to be one of Lesnar's you know, key opponents you know something about a match between the two but he rested me at 30 nobody really talks about it yeah, I was going to say though, it's like it did feel like it was hinting towards a triple threat being Rock, Taker, and Triple H, but then just it's Kurt Angle instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, is that Kurt Angle's reward for his uh, victory this evening? Maybe we'll, we'll go uh, back to the undercards. Uh, some really interesting matches when you look at this card on paper, you think he's just like this had that match on it, and yeah. Kurt Angle taking on Hollywood Hulk Hogan. And I remember watching the video package for this. Angle lost a hair v hair match the month prior to Edge, which also led to him now being having the infamous bald look that we now know. 
but the cheek of Holgate doing his very right to make fun of anybody for their hair. Like, mate, you you you've not got hair. That that hair is like clinging on for dear life. Uh, and it's lo- fighting a losing battle. Like, the only person Hogan would ever, you know, it's typical Hulk Hogan. He refuses to put even his own hairline over. You know, I, I did Sorry. put it as the tagline: "The Battle of the Baldies." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this return of Hulk Hogan. Uh, we have to go back to February to No Way Out when the NWO returned, and of course, we had as you already mentioned it, Scott. Rock and Hogan at WrestleMania 18, which totally stole the show, and the 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 Hogan heel uh, face turn, um, and he was so so over in this period. The fans were lapping it up big style, and of course he was given the championship at Backlash and shouldn't have been given the championship at that point. So he's, you know, he's in this great run. And Angle, I think, at this period is in this sort of funny period because he, he filmed himself at WrestleMania with nothing really to do in films and then gets thrown into this match against Kane, which, you know, was a bit of a nothing match. I know, I know you love Kane, Scott, but I'm sure you would maybe agree it wasn't a great programme. Yeah. Uh, and then, as you just said, he went on to have this feud with Edge, and then you know he's running around with this wig on, which is you know anybody else would look stupid in it, but it was just a classic example of how great Kurt Angle could be, how he could take something and just totally, totally run with it um, as well. Um, when I was watching this match back, uh, you know, it was given two stars. I was actually. Uh, I actually felt I found it fairly enjoyable. I mean, there was some classic Hogan brawling at the start with them working the crowd and then him controlling um, you know, some of the early proportions of the match. But then, you know, when Kurt Angle got into it, we started to see some some nice moves from Angle. I think Angle forced a decent match out of Hulk. Hulk. Uh, an exciting near fall after an angle slam. I, I enjoyed the Hulk up versus the straps down moment. <laughs> and I did also enjoy the, the finish of the match as well, where we had the the chair shot where Angle misses and it bounces back and hits him in the face. The big boot from Hogan and then he hits the rope for the leg drops. You're thinking, like, this is it. He's going he's gonna to do it now. And Angle gets him in the ankle rock, lock. And an ankle lock that lasts probably longer than the King of the Ring final. Yeah, the referee <laughs> doesn't, break the ang- doesn't break the hole when Hogan gets the ropes. You even hear Hogan saying to the referee, "I got the ropes," and eventually, you know, he can't get he can't get out of it. He tries and fails, and and Hogan eventually taps out. The first time I'd ever seen Hulk Hogan tap out, and it was a bit of a shock to see this face. Hulk Hogan submit, but Angle, I think, uh, you know, Hogan uh, would, you know, put over Triple H before this. He would put over Kurt Angle tonight, and then Brock Lesnar on his way through to SummerSlam. Um, yeah, I thought this was a a good moment for Kurt Angle. Yeah, I, I agree with you about the stuff with Kane. Yeah, I think it was that looked at that, look at that match at Mania X8, and you think this is typical. Uh, these two guys need to be on the car, but I had nothing to do. So fuck it, we'll have them fight each other. Uh, if you want to hear like a funny story, uh, try and find the YouTube clip from Kurt's Inside the Ropes tour where he talks about how he and Vince basically ribbed Edge 
up until uh, right up until the moment where they go through the curtain, making Edge think that he's the one that's going to have to get his head shaved, and how basically disappointed Edge was with that idea. But looking at this match here, I agree with you, guys. This is one of my favorite matches on the show. You know, you talk if that's late in his career, if you want to get a great match at Hogan, he needs to be in there with people like Kurt. And, and Kurt doesn't mind to make himself look like, like a make himself look like a fool. So, you know, he can sell the whole Hulk up and take Hogan's weak ass punches. And I do like how they can make you think, well, it's gonna be that typical you know, nostalgia feel good ending for Hogan for like, nope, wrestling machine angle then snaps into place, grabs the ankle ankle lock and I think Hogan was in the ankle lock for that long because he was still trying to think of ways just late into the match to think, is there a way I can get out of doing the job here? Until inevitably he had to tap out and <laughs> I believe he would like lose via submission before. I think like the match with Brock he passed out and he's verbally submitted to people like Sting before, but it's the first ever time he's actually like tapped out physically to somebody. I think it would be the only time as well. So I think mm. Angle was the most put over than most people whenever they've beaten Hulk Hogan and I think this would then signal Angle they like go full time once they show they had the bald head and we'd be, we'd see more of what we'd know we'd go on to know as wrestling machine Kurt Angle. No, it's a it's a good match. Uh, again, I think it's like uh, you kind of forget. Obviously, Hogan's kind of the stuff he's kind of said, and obviously a lot of stuff about what he's like backstage politics and that. So like he's not favourable, but the crowd are so into him when he comes out and join the match. And uh, again, like I, I remember seeing this, and I know Angle won, but it was at one point I actually was like, oh, did I get it wrong? Does does like Angle win in another match? Because I was like that close to thinking that Hogan was going to win until he does the leg drop and Angle reverses it into an ankle lock, which was really impressive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think guys, I'm sure like been able to get one of Hogan's probably best matches of this period out of him. He was a royal. There you go. You can be in the main event in the next month's pay per view. You're not going to win, but you can be in the main event. And I think there was a whole thing to get Kurt to that main event. I think he made Undertaker tap as well. And a weird double finish spot, which again, making Taker tap as well was there. So in a couple of years, Kurt managed to make both Taker and Hulk Hogan tap out. Uh, and also an interesting tidbit, like JR pointed out, this was only Hogan's second King of the Ring pay-per-view appearance. The other one being the first one where he lost the title to Yokozuna. So Hogan only wrestled on two King of the Ring pay-per-views. The very first one and the last one. Mm. Yes, he must hate the King of the Ring. <laughs> <laughs> it took him ten years to get over it, and he comes back and he loses again. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've, got, we've got two matches left on the the card. I mean, technically five. I don't think anybody wants to talk about the Sunday Night Heat extravaganza that saw the Hardy Boys defeat Raven and Stevie Richards. Nah, uh, we'll keep, we'll save that for when we do the Sunday Night Heat season. A match that almost went as long as the King of the Ring final uh, saw Molly Holly defeat Trish Stratus for the Women's Championship. You know, two of the better women wrestlers you got, you know, in the company at this point, you know, both very well respected Hall of Famers. Molly Holly, I think, Molly Holly, I think, is working behind the scenes as as an agent for WWE. But, you know, it's really distracting because, you know, as good as the match was, you know, you had Molly doing the the Molly go round and missing. But the theme of the match was basically, oh, hasn't Molly Holly got a large arse? Yeah. I noticed that as well, which is like, why are you just talking about her arse? 
<laughs> they even renamed the the Molly go around as the butt bomb at one point. <laughs> it's like you've got a couple of teenagers in commentary. No, it's the fucking teenagers, the ones backstage feeding the fucking lines. Yeah. This was quite a physical match, and um, it struck me as one of these ones. I think we've heard the, the story of some of the ladies saying like, that nobody really cared what they did. So they took the liberty and took the opportunities just to go out and start to, to do a wee bit more and try and maximise the limited amount of time they've got. And... Um, I think that's what these two did with this match. They've not got a ton of time, and they tried to make the most of the time they they had. Yeah, I think it's covered in the season two of the Ruthless Aggression documentary, but this has been around about the time that Fit Finley's put in charge of the women's division, and you see a lot of people back to these thought as a joke for a joke on Finley to put him in charge of the women's division, but the idea that he slowly but surely started like, slipping in like proper wrestling moves into the women's matches and he, he was very much behind letting them be wrestlers so I think you can kind of see elements of that influence here and you know we'd have it later on in the year with like Big Victoria coming in having some great matches with Trish Stratus. It was a wee bit difficult when it came to the finish for Molly to actually manage to get a, 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 hand, a, a good handful of Trish's tights to make that finish look realistic when she was supposed to have a handful of tights in that roll up I mean that outfit that Trish was wearing was pretty skin tight <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah but uh, uh, I did. I was pleased that Molly Holly got her moment uh, you know got, got the chance to become champion and got her, her moment with the belt yeah I was actually shocked that she won because you know, I knew she'd be she'd she'd win the title at some point during the ruthless aggression era, but I didn't realise it was at this pay per view that she won it. So when they did the roll through spot, like oh, because I knew the match was short and I expected it to be short given you know the dream and the woman at the time, but I didn't expect her to win. And I know like Gr kind of like scolded her for using the tights and all, like what kind of ending is that? What kind of way is that to win the title? Like really, you know, this is a woman who has her opponent and everyone else mock her for you know her arse. And then she managed to come in and drop with the title. Like, really, I think of anything, Molly Holly was the triumph of Babyface, of anything. Uh, but, you know, that's, you know, that's my opinion. And the final match that we've got to talk about is, again, a match that on people like, really, that was on the show, but I don't know if it got the result that we maybe wanted because the crowd were fairly silent during some of this. We had Ric Flair taking on Eddie Guerrero. Now, earlier on, like Gary mentioned, Flair being rushed as a, a face, you know, losing control of Raw. I believe uh, the plan was that Eddie Guerrero was going to be put in by Flair as a guest referee for Austin's qualifier against uh, against against Brock Lesnar. And uh, he would screw Austin out of the match. It would lead to a match Austin versus Eddie at this pay-per-view. Uh, I think Eddie, Benoit and Flair had some alliance, so I think Eddie and Benoit getting matches with Steve Austin would make help get them over and having the backing of heel Ric Flair. And then on the Raw before, there's a kind of rushed Flair as a face, have him get attacked by Benoit and Guerrero and uh, set up this match. So Flair's just been rushed as a face. The fans don't really have much of a reason to cheer him after he's been a heel the last couple of months. You know, he screwed Austin uh, Backlash as well and teamed against him in a handicap match with a big show, I think, at Judgment Day. So he's suddenly been rushed as a face. But also Flair has admitted that this is a period of time where he wasn't the most confident in his own in-ring ability. So I don't think he's properly 
you know, peak Ric Flair at this stage. So, you know, Andy, once again, it's a case of good on paper, but maybe the execution was what you wanted. Yeah, I was looking forward to this match as well, and I just again I thought it was quite slow and just like I, I you know, but just was losing interest. I was more like oh, I just wanted to like check my phone rather than like watching this match. And uh, I think Flair looked, I think they both looked good, but it was just again, it's you've got two sort of the dirtiest players in the game. You've got live cheating mm-hmm. and steel, and so it just it should have meshed really well, but just didn't really. Yeah, he's not even full on light gene steel. You know, he's still committed to the old Latino heat, light music they had when he started his like solo run with China back in the day. And you know, this also gets a lot of time as well. And maybe it went a tad too long. Second longest match, Gary, after the main event, it went I seventeen it minutes. Too, sorry, Scott. Yeah, I think you're right. It did go a bit too long, seventeen minutes. I enjoyed. Uh, you know, the, this line about Flair having one last run left in him, but a lot of the victories he would have in this period were, you know, by, you know, with with some honours along the way, but there was a moment in this match, there was some really, you got to see some really good, cool stuff from Flair, some of Flair's classic yeah, playbook. You know, there's some really wicked chops in it, and I'll always love when Flair would distract the referee and you would get the sneaky sort of, reverse low blow when he would kick them from uh, he'd be standing in front of his opponent but kick them from behind uh, kick kick his leg between their legs sorry I made an arse of explaining that <laughs> um, <laughs> um, them all there was also one of these lines during it uh, that a victory for Eddie in this match would be a feller in Guerrero sombrero and <laughs> um, we would have Chris Benoit making an appearance and putting the crossface on outside the ring, which would distract the referee for for Bubba Ray Dudley <laughs> to make another appearance. If he were, if there was a draft in this era, David Campbell would have definitely picked Bubba Ray Dudley and be getting very excited at this point. But it was an incredibly weak pinfall after Bubba did that sort of butt bomb thing on um, uh-huh. on Eddie and and. Flair was able to like crawl over as if the two of them had been shot and cover them up. So it was a match I don't think really did. I, I'm not sure that anybody came out of this match any better off than they went into it. And isn't the point that that both people look good or at least one person looks good on the out of it, an uh, outcome of it? Yeah, I mm. think like it was a fairly slow like match that could have really been saved with a solid finish, but. This really wasn't like, you know, Bubbery Dudley helping Ric Flair get the win is not what you really want to see, especially against Eddie Guerrero. And I do love that every classic look by the guys on, he finds somebody who he likes to see that David Campbell would pick in a draft. But of all of, all of them, I did not expect fucking Bubbery Dudley to be a suggestion. I mean, Brock Lesnar would be like the Usos in the current draft, he's just racking up points all the time. But, uh, Bobby Dudley, I did not expect him to be, you know, get, get David Campbell would be on SDL every week explaining why Bobby Dudley is secretly the best pick he could make. <laughs> uh, I think uh, mentioning the late David Campbell is t- taking over for me, squeezing mentions in for, for Viscera. I mean, we got that at the start when we thought about his, you know, King of the Ring win getting, you know, seemingly scrubbed from history in WE's eyes, so it managed to do both in the same podcast, but yeah. you know, it was weird. Like 
Bill Ray wants to make an impact, so he just randomly helps Ric Flair for whatever reason that Flair's a good guy. And I believe this would lead to a match of vengeance of Eddie and Benoit taking on uh, Bubba and Spike. And even though the brand split was in effect randomly uh, in the months following the draft, people would just move brand. So like, I think this was a Raw match before, shortly after Vengeance, they just randomly moved Eddie and Benoit over to SmackDown where, where they'd become part of the SmackDown 6. Yeah, they do that when the general managers come into play because they, they then have this story of them stealing talent from each other mm. for a period of time. Yeah, there's a whole thing of them when they decided they to do like, the exclusive champions. At least they tried to make an excuse for it then, as opposed to more recently, where it's just like, just go where you want. Because, you know, everybody wanted to see Baron Corbin appear in multiple shows in a week. <laughs> No, it made it compelling TV, where it was like who was going to jump where. It was very much like uh, WCW, WWF. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, I like the brand split, where it's like set down, and I like the, you know, they do stories like that. I just, I don't like this circle, just, just appear wherever you want type of thing. There, there was still some like cross-promotion at the time. Like, I think the tag champs and like, the women's and interview could still go between certain shows, the I see, and like cruiserweight titles were like exclusive to certain brands, but in a couple of months they'd stop the whole, you know, champions going across each other and uh, do the whole bidding war for for Brock, which then lead to Triple H being handed the world belt. That that's right, and the women's title would become exclusive to Raw, mm-hmm. and I think cruiserweight became exclusive to SmackDown. Yeah, yeah, and then like they had Raw also had the hardcore and European, which they then just unified with the IC belt. And the weeks following this, because they say they had too many belts, and I did love it. Yeah, Raw gets the women's belt, even though there's women on SmackDown. But it would take them until 2008 to give them another women's belt, and it led to the introduction of the horribly looking Divas title and the butterfly belt. Mm. Yes, the butterfly belt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Awful stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes, a horrible time in history, but. Uh, that has been King of the Rings 2002. Some mixed thoughts, I think, so far uh, from the panel. So, a thing where we give our, our rating out of five, and make sure you you be careful. Your point two five, your point seven five, or Gary Karen will come after you. Uh, <laughs> Gary, what would your rating be out of five? Uh, for, you know what? <laughs> no, that's a joke. Um, I'm going to go for three out of five. I don't think it's a bad show by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there's some. There's some good things about this show, but there's still a bit of it that's a bit eh, a bit meh. And some of the finishes in particular let let some of the matches the matches down. So I'm gonna go for three out of five. But I think this is a show that's well worth people going back to watch for its historic importance. The birth of Brock Lesnar, the Stone Cold Walkout, and you can see WWE trying to reshuffle the pack here and also it's not very often you see Hulk Hogan put anybody over. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, three out of five. Some good things, but could could do better overall. Uh, Andy, about you out of five? I'd probably go as well with 3.5. I feel it's um, it's quite a strong sort of roster in terms of what the, the talent they have. And there is some kind of dream matches there, but it just didn't really, but it just didn't really build it up well when Again, I kind of it's been twenty years since I like saw it, 
and it was I was a bit unsure about the storylines. So I remember when McMahon showed up in Taker's uh, Hulk Hogan's promo, I was like, oh yeah, because they just wrestled at Mania, and that's not for another year. And I was just a bit confused, and I felt maybe I'd enjoyed it more if I kind of knew more about the storylines going on. I laugh uh, during that promo as well, where Hogan the storyline is Hogan wants to retire, but Vince won't allow him. Like as if Hogan would willingly willingly retire in two thousand two when he's still coming <laughs> off merch sales and a, a brief run as WWE champion. Hogan would still be wrestling now if his body would allow it. He's still talking about he wants to have his last match twenty years later. <laughs> he had a match as recently as twenty eleven, and boom for fucking glory. Ten years ago, <laughs> it's still it's still far later than he should have ever been wrestling. But uh, yeah, that made me it, laugh as well. <laughs> I'm gonna give it three out of five. I still think I think it's slightly generous. I'll tend to go two point seven five. I'll be nice and say three because uh, like there's some good stuff here. Like I like the RVD match. You know, I like seeing Test and uh, Brock try to buy each other right up until the finish uh, with the interference. You know, it's a historical. Significance for various reasons, as Gary says, and it's also interesting to see like how King of the Ring pay per view kind of ended, and you know some unique pairings for the time where WWE was at that point. But I still feel like there was still like, certain aspects of the, like certain matches could have had a lot better finishes. You know, the chemistry for certain matches still fell off, and it did feel like kind of a a damp squib and ending for King of the Ring as a standalone pay-per-view in some aspects. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have our opinion. Dave Meltzer has his opinion. Opinions are like arseholes. Everyone's got them. I'm <laughs> sure you've got some opinions. Let us know what you guys think of King of the Ring 2002. Have we been too harsh or too generous? Let us know on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at SuperHBG or let us know on the SuperHBG community page. Leave us a comment and let us know your thoughts on King of the Ring 2002. And make sure you take our back catalog, past people you look backs, you know, profiles of certain wrestlers. We did one on somebody who would, you know, a few weeks flatter the phrase ruthless aggression. John Cena's first 10 years is in our back catalog, our most recent feature show. We've got some interesting stuff coming up. I'm not sure entirely what guy is the one in charge of that. I'm sure he'll tell you all about it. Uh, we've got, we had two episodes of Central last week because, you know, that Vincent Man being a dirty bastard uh, required an extra episode. <laughs> But Saturday Draft Live every Saturday, where we don't have Bilberry Dudley as a draft pick, but let's hear who we do have. And recently, an episode of East Meets West went out on with the Super Juniors, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk about the lineup for G1 and the outcome of Forbidden Door and how that affects the New Japan side of things. But, uh, Gary, do you have anything that you can tell us about what is coming up for the future if shows? People, if people do enjoy this uh, going back in the time machine, we're going to go back even further. We're going to go back 25 years to In Your House Canadian Stampede. We've got that one coming up. And also, because we're heading towards that time of year where there's lots of ladders starting to appear in briefcases, we're going to discuss the best and the worst Money in the Bank winners. And then, uh, Scott, you're going to be back to talk about Randy Orton, as well as the second part uh, of our prof- a deep dive into Randy Orton's career and one of our profile features. So some really good stuff to come up there. Yeah, definitely. I remember me, Andy, and Ross did the the show a few months back about Randy Orton. We did that. We were, weren't meant it. We, we didn't mean for it to be a, a, a two parter. But much like John Cena, who's now getting a two parter, he's just got so much to cover. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot in part two about you know his run with legacy, his many matches, or too many matches with John Cena 
stuff of the Wyatt family, and maybe some some stuff about RK Bro and the fun sporting's having with that. So yeah, great stuff to come on the feature schedule, and I'm sure they have a developing situation in current day 2022 WWE and AEW. There'll be a lot of stuff to talk about in Central in the coming weeks as well. So all that remains for me is to thank my panel. Thank you once again, Gary Kernan. Thank you, Scott. And Andy Mitchell. No worries. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. And I've been Scott McLeod. Uh, thank you for tuning into our video shows. Tune in again. And fuck you, Stephen Wilson. <laughs> <laughs>